Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. It is often said, you've probably heard this, maybe you've even said this, that love is not so much a feeling as it is a decision. And that is true of other things as well. As we've been going through the sermon series talking about joy, perhaps we're also coming to see that joy involves a feeling, yes, but it's more than just a feeling. Often joy is a choice, it is a decision that we make. When scripture tells us to rejoice, it's telling us to make a deliberate choice. To rejoice often can go against the grain of the world around us. And we can choose to rejoice even when we may not feel particularly happy or pleased with our circumstances. As we've been reminded in recent weeks, our culture is obsessed with the pursuit of happiness. But happiness can be elusive. It can be fleeting. We, we, we think that we have found happiness, and all of a sudden we discover that it has perhaps left us behind. Happiness can come and go, depending on our circumstances. And so entire industries exist in our world to try to help us to get happy, to feel happy, and to stay happy. But maybe you've found trying to be happy all the time is really exhausting. And, and it tends to leave us pretty unhappy in the end. But joy, on the other hand, is something different. It's deeper than our circumstances. Rather than being shaped by our situations, it shapes how we enter into and respond to our situations. And we've been reminded of this throughout our sermon series on joy. The writings of the Apostle Paul show us that his heart was aglow with the vibrant and overflowing joy of Christ, even when he was in prison, even when he was being persecuted, even when he was beaten, when he was shipwrecked, in all of these situations that, that probably we don't have a lot to compare directly to, Paul had joy in a way that the world can't explain, that the world can't describe, and that the world cannot take away. And, and so, Paul had joy because he had Jesus. He chose joy because of the power of Christ at work within him. And so as we continue this morning, our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we shall see that in the third chapter, Paul has a whole lot to say about the basis for his joy. So if we too want to be able to have joy in all circumstances like Paul, we need to hold fast to Jesus. Because joy that is rooted in anything else is not going to last. It will fade away. But joy that is rooted in Jesus Christ will carry us through. The only surefire way to have more joy in our lives is to have more of Jesus in our lives. So friends, if you haven't already done so, I invite you, if you would like to open up your Bible or your Bible app to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. You're also welcome to follow along uh, using the words on the screen or simply listen as the words of scripture, of scripture are read. After all, that, that's exactly what the Philippians themselves did 
when this letter was first being read to their church assembly on a Sunday morning nearly 2,000 years ago. Paul begins this section of his letter by talking about true joy in the battle for our hearts. After concluding his thoughts on the humility of Christ in Philippians 2, and then commending Timothy and Epaphroditus as faithful examples of workers who, who have humility and who have made sacrifices that the Philippians can look up to. But now, Paul turns to something that has been weighing on his heart and on his mind throughout this entire letter. He has some important things to say about joy. And so starting here at the beginning of the third chapter, Paul writes this. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He adds, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And then he has a warning to say. He says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. For, verse 3, it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though he says, I myself have reasons for such confidence. Well, well Paul has thrown a lot of different thoughts and ideas into just a few sentences. What all is going on here? We open up our Bibles and suddenly we're transported into this middle, the middle of this debate, this conversation that's been going on between Paul and the Philippians. So, so Paul's main instruction here is for the believers to rejoice. And, and not just rejoice in general, to rejoice specifically in the Lord. Now, now Paul admits that he's probably starting to sound like a broken record to them. They've heard him say this before. This isn't anything new. He admits that he's repeating himself. And guess what? He's going to keep repeating himself. This isn't the first time or the last time that they've heard him say to rejoice. But, but why does he drive this point home? Because it is a safeguard for him. Because there is a battle that is raging for their hearts. And by rejoicing in the Lord, Paul knows that the Philippian Christians can guard their hearts. So that they can withstand the spiritual danger that is around them. Well, well what is this spiritual danger? Paul has heard. Now, now, Paul's in prison as he's writing this. He's far away from the Philippians. But they have sent one of their own number to him bearing gifts because, you know, guess what? Not only was Paul in prison, but in the ancient world, if you were in prison, you had to pay your own prison bills. And, uh, and so the churches provided financial support so that Paul's living expenses could, could be paid. So this guy Epaphroditus comes from the Philippians bearing this gift for Paul, and he stays with Paul a while. And while he's there, Paul asks how things are going, and Epaphroditus gives him the update. And, and Paul is disturbed when he hears what is happening. Because this congregation has been targeted by false teachers. False teachers from a faction that, that we know, uh, in retrospect, as the Judaizers. And, and this faction was actively at work. Quite a few of the New Testament writings were written to respond to what this group was doing. Well, well what were they doing? The Judaizers were coming to churches that had mostly Gentile background believers. So believers who 
didn't come from a Jewish background, but they had received Jesus Christ as Lord, and they were worshiping as a Christian church. And these Judaizers would come, and they would settle, and they would gain influence, and they would spread teachings that, that on the surface sounded a lot like what Paul and the other apostles had taught, teachings about Jesus. But then there was a little something extra that was sprinkled into these teachings. Not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but, well, you actually need to be fully Jewish in a religious sense to become Christian. And so there were these requirements that the Philippians hadn't been told about. Now, now they're being told, well, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you also really ought to be following the Jewish ceremonial law. And well, uh, gentlemen in the Philippian church, if you haven't received the covenant sign of circumcision uh, that was given to our ancestor Abraham, then well, sorry, but you gotta do that too. And extra requirements were added to that. And so for the Philippians, they hadn't heard about this before. They weren't sure how to respond to all of that. And, and they were being swayed by this teaching. And for Paul, this completely went against the grain of everything that he had taught him. Paul understood that Jesus had fulfilled the Jewish law so that we don't have to. And instead of the old covenant sign of circumcision, Jesus had given his followers a new covenant sign, baptism, which we still practice today. So, so in obedience to Jesus' great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, Paul and Silas had done that. That's why they planted the church in Philippi. And what was it that they told those Philippian believers? Going back to that encounter with the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, there was the earthquake that shook the jail. And then we read that in verse 29, the jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and just like you remember reading in the book of Acts, they said, well, buddy, go get a knife because it's time for you to become physically Jewish. No, that's not what they said. Instead, they said, well, just follow the law of Moses and observe these holy days and go to the temple of Jerusalem to make the necessary offerings every time that you commit a sin against the Lord. No, they didn't say that either. Actually, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You your household. And that is what happened. And over time, the Philippian church grew and flourished through the proclamation of the unadorned gospel of grace. But now these new guys are in town. And at first glance, their message looks a lot like Paul's, but now they're adding other things. And so Paul sees that there is a grave danger here. He speaks out against these Judaizers, saying in a more literal translation of verse 2, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the mutilation. He uses this vivid language of a threefold picture of, of things that they should beware of that are all coming from these false teachers, that they're, they're like barking and, and snarling people, hounding God's people with unnecessary burdens, that they claim to be teaching good works, but instead they're actively working toward evil. And they are desecrating the old covenant sign by trying to use it when it's no longer needed. Paul puts a spin on the Greek word for circumcision by indicating that what the Judaizers are doing goes far beyond what God had intended. In contrast, Paul says, we are the true circumcision. For Paul, what God is looking for is a circumcision of the heart. And what are the marks of those who have a heart that has been set apart for God? Well, first, 
Paul says, they serve God by his spirit. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, giving them fellowship and communion with the Lord. Secondly, Paul says, they don't boast in their own works or their own religiosity, but instead they boast in Christ. And third, they put no confidence in the flesh, even if, like Paul, they might have had a good reason for doing that. Well, what was Paul talking about here when he says confidence in the flesh? Is, is he saying that, that our physical bodies are bad, that the physical world is bad? Is he talking about escaping from the world? No, when, when Paul speaks of the flesh in this way, he typically has in mind human efforts to live apart from God. Or, or a lifestyle that's focused on pleasing the desires of our sinful natures. Or living in such a way as if Jesus had never come at all. And sin still ruled over us. These are things that he speaks about in many of his letters. So, so when, when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's showing a contrast here. A contrast between placing our confidence and our joy in Jesus Christ, or placing our confidence and our joy in earthly or human factors. Like relying on our own performance or own accomplishments, to supply something on top of, or in addition to, what Jesus has already done for us. Because the heart of the gospel is receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's resting upon Him alone. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is abundantly more than enough. He is everything that we need. In Him we find true peace. We find true hope. We find true love. And the joy of the gospel is that we are in fellowship with Christ, who is the wellspring of eternal joy. Knowing him is what we were made for, and nothing else can satisfy us. So for Paul, what makes the false teaching of the Judaizers so dangerous and so evil is the fact that it, it masquerades as this gospel of peace and joy, but... It adds other things on top of the gospel and places a burden upon people. It robs them of their peace. It steals their joy. It tells them, hey, you think you have fellowship with God, but wait, have you dotted every I? Have you crossed every T? Are you sure that God is really pleased with you? Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should make sure that you are good enough for God to love you. And that is not the message of Scripture. That is not the message of the gospel. What is gone in, in that message is the simple invitation to rest in Christ alone. Instead, there is this command to trust in Jesus plus something else. And, and usually this something else is not something that Jesus does for us, but it's something that we have to do for him. As Pastor Aaron reminded us, tomorrow marks the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses, which helped to set in motion the events that we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. And one of the major issues that Luther was trying to draw attention to was this tendency to add other stuff on top of Jesus, to make Christianity about Jesus plus this, or Jesus plus that, and to make salvation a matter of not just trusting in Jesus, but in Trusting in Jesus while we're working really hard to be good enough for Jesus or to keep him from being mad at us. But, but that is not 
the Christian message. This Jesus plus something mindset, by the way, wasn't just a problem in Martin Luther's day. We face this problem today, too. There are different flavors of this alive and well. It's not just the idea of, oh, yeah, works righteousness. We know, Pastor Andrew, we don't earn our salvation. Christ has done that for us. But, But this Jesus plus something else mindset slithers into other aspects of our relationship with God and others as well. First, there's, there's the classic flavor of, of straight-up legalism, which gets so mired down and following a moral checklist in order to be considered good enough for God that any focus on God's grace, on God's love, on God's forgiveness is lost. But the gospel reminds us we don't need to be good enough because God gives us his grace anyway. We are unworthy, but his love meets us all the way. Another flavor is kind of the insider Christian mindset, which which distinguishes between the first-class Christians who happen to have the inside track on the things of God because they've discovered the secret sauce of Christianity, which is usually presented as a particular doctrine or a devotional practice or or, or maybe a certain spiritual gift. And then there are the other people who are just regular Christians. They, They don't have the secret sauce. Bless their hearts. Um, So they they just don't know any better. And and that's not a biblical idea either. God doesn't show that kind of favoritism. He doesn't say, here's the secret recipe to be a super Christian. And and if you're a super Christian, I I like you better than than everyone else. That comes from our sinful nature, not from the Bible. And, And then there's another spin on that, which is the real Christians don't do X, Y, and Z flavor of Jesus plus something else. And as this name would suggest, this way of thinking acknowledges the basic gospel framework, but then identifies certain behaviors. You know, uh, like, you know, classic favorites that have been chosen in the past are drinking or swearing or different views. Like if you have the wrong interpretation of certain biblical passages, or if you've got the wrong end times view or or something else, or another aspect of of life, like like if you're friends with the wrong people, you hang out with the wrong crowd, or you vote for the wrong party, or or something else like that. And and real Christians wouldn't do whatever X, Y, and Z is. So therefore, that becomes a litmus test to tell who's really a Christian and who really loves Jesus and who doesn't. Because after all, if you really believe the Bible, and if you really love Jesus, you would never even think about doing fill in the blank. But again, that's not the gospel. The gospel reminds us that we all stray from God. That we all do things that break his heart, but that God's love is still there to catch us. And that there's nothing that's beyond the limits of God's grace. Because God's grace always has a farther reach than our ability to wander or stray from him. And then there are the less sophisticated flavors of this mindset, like the secret trap door to the abyss flavor, which says, yeah, we're all sinners in need of God's grace, but if you do this sin, bam, no second chance for you. And often we think that way because our sense of our own sin or other people's sins seems so great to us. But we need to be reminded that the mercy of God is so much greater than our sins. There is no... Thing that we do and then suddenly God is done with us and there's no hope. There's always a second chance. And then there's the bundling something else with Jesus approach. This is kind of a different angle that happens if we elevate a particular cause or concept or value or ideology. 
that that's important, but we make it on par with the gospel. And if you don't really have this in our minds, you don't really have the gospel, and you're missing the point of Christianity. But yet that is adding something to the gospel, which Paul says is just another gospel. You can't add to it. You can't change it. And, and so these are just a few examples of how this Jesus plus something mindset can creep into our lives. In, in all of these cases, our, our vision of the power and the beauty of God's grace gets blocked from our view. Our fellowship with God and with one another suffers as a result of that. Our sense of peace and security in Christ suffers. Our joy in the Lord runs dry because we're not finding it in Christ. We're trying to find it somewhere else. And so these things become not aids to our growth in Christ, but competitors to the gospel, rivals to God's grace, rivals competing for our hearts, for our imagination, and for our delight. So Paul speaks out against these rivals to the gospel because he knows firsthand from his own experiences that relying on a fake gospel leads to a fake sense of joy, which whispers hollow promises in our ear that leaves us empty at the end of the day. Paul knows about this because that's how he spent a lot of his life living, pursuing a fake gospel, a fake joy. Continuing at the second half of verse 4, Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Ha ha, take that, Judaizers. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Ha, you think you're causing trouble? That's nothing compared to the trouble I was causing. And then he says, as for righteousness, based on the law, which is what the Judaizers are trying to point people toward, faultless. By human standards, Paul has a perfect spiritual pedigree. There's no one who can find fault with him anywhere from a human point of view. And that includes things that Paul doesn't even have control over. He didn't choose where he was born or who his parents were. He received heritage, privilege, an ethnic and religious identity as part of God's chosen people. He had been given the covenant sign of circumcision at the right time, and he didn't choose that for himself. His ancestral link to one of the tribes of Israel was, was confirmed and documented so he could say, ha ha, truly, I am one of this chosen group of people. And so all of this had passed on to Paul. It had been given to him, giving him a solid head start on the path to Jewish greatness. But then he made the most of that head start by achieving everything that his parents and mentors and teachers wanted him to. He, he was an active and promising member of the devout and religious party of the Pharisees. He demonstrated his loyalty to God and country, so he thought, by doing everything in his power to try to stamp out Christianity. He was meticulous in how he tried to observe the law. And in fact, Paul was a better Jew than the Judaizers were. And so he knew firsthand, hey, if this approach to God can lead you to God, then I would have gotten there because I did everything that they told me to do. And yet, that was a dead end. And so that reminds us to search our own hearts and to think, what are the things that we are thinking of that bring us closer to God? Ah, oh, God likes me more because I'm in church every Sunday. Because I volunteer in these ministries. I read the Bible once a year. 
I even wear a tie on Sunday mornings. I've memorized the catechism. I can even quote a few Greek and Hebrew words. And we might say this and that. I, I give to this charity. I support missions. I do all of these things. And those are great things to do. But if we think those things are bringing us closer to God and that God has more favor upon us because of those things, that, that they are part of why God accepts us, then those things have actually become a spiritual obstacle to us. And at the same end of the spectrum, we might think oppositely. We might think, you know what? I didn't grow up in the church. I don't know much about the Bible. I've had trouble with the law. I've had trouble with addiction. I couldn't quote a Bible verse to you if it was right in front of me. And we might think, because of these things, how could God love me? What use would God have for someone like me? I have nothing to offer to him. Does he really value me? Do I really have a place in his family? And when we start thinking that way, again, there's a barrier that has been put up telling us, no, God couldn't love you unless God will accept you if. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ has loved us so much that he pursues us, that he has done everything so that we might be made right with God. And there's nothing more that we have to prove. And our efforts to try to prove something just lead us in a spiral of going in circles the wrong direction. So Paul is speaking out of this because he wants us to find joy in Christ. He doesn't want us to find fake joy that's not going to last. Fake joy is built on the illusion of a false gospel. And echoing across five centuries, the words of the Protestant reformer John Calvin warn us how dangerous it is to try to add something to the gospel or to come up with additional requirements to earn God's grace. Calvin says it is not lawful for Christians to have anything outside Christ. And he says, I call outside Christ everything that prevents Christ alone being our glory and reigning over us Calvin understood that anything that keeps Christ from having complete rule over us, from having complete relationship with us, from being the one thing that we glory and delight in, that undermines our life with Jesus Christ. It steals our joy, and it cannot give us what it promises. So, so what we need then, what we need is real joy, which is found only in Jesus Christ. And so as Paul turns his focus from the smoke and mirrors of fake joy back to the real joy that is found in Jesus, his passionate words show us how Jesus changes everything and rewrites our definition of what joy can even be. Picking up in verse 7, Paul says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then he says, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We saw back in verse 2 how Paul uses this threefold formula. Beware, beware, beware. And now he uses another threefold formula. He says, I consider, I consider, I consider. And each time Paul intensifies, he adds to it. He gets more passionate. He uses more vivid language. He starts in verse seven. 
whatever were gains, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. And then in verse 8, he says it more forcefully. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he builds up to a crescendo, getting to the next sentence that spans verses 8 and 9. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now that statement is already pretty striking in the English language. But believe it or not, it packs more of a punch in Paul's original Greek. When he says garbage, he's not just saying garbage. He's saying scubala, which appears in the English Bibles as garbage or rubbish, or sometimes the King James actually says dung. Um, but this, this word scubala is a stronger word in Greek than its translations are in English. In the ancient world, scubala referred to nasty things like rotten food or fecal matter or, or a decaying carcass. It, it, it communicated uncleanness and contempt. It, it, if you encountered scubala in the course of your day-to-day -day life, you would quickly recoil in disgust. And so when Paul says scubala, he is using vulgar slang. And so when this letter was being read out loud to the Philippian congregation, the person reading it might have hesitated to say this word out loud in that room full of people. The teenage boys in the room probably snickered and thought, ha, he said scubala. <laughs> and there might have been some people who kind of gave a disapproving look. Come on, Paul. Don't you know you're not supposed to write that way in the Bible? So how should we respond? What do we do when we come across colorful language like this in Scripture? Well, I would say that instead of trying to soften or ignore Paul's language on the one hand, or instead of going the other way and just be like, all right, we're going to start cussing in church all the time, I would submit to you that a more helpful response is to try to understand why Paul uses that kind of graphic way of speaking. What is it that draws that kind of colorful language out of Paul? It's when something rivals God's grace for the allegiance and affections of God's people. You, you want to know what it takes to make Paul cuss? You threaten the spiritual benefit of the people that Paul loves. You try to put something else in the way of their experiencing the joy and the fellowship of Christ. And Paul is going to say, not a chance. That is not the message we have received. That is not what a relationship with Christ is all about. And he will get your attention to put your focus back on the Lord. We see here Paul's love for these people. We see that he is jealous for them to grow in Christ. We see that he doesn't want anything to stand in their way. And so if there is something in our hearts that is causing us to not rejoice in Christ, if we love something else more than him, if we're relying upon something else in our lives when we should be relying upon God, if we are equating something else to Christ, Paul urges us in the strongest possible terms to recoil from that thing as if it is a big, stinking pile of scubala. And so, this warning for our souls comes with Paul's statement of the fact that there is so much, something so much better out there. What is that? What does he want them to focus on instead? Verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
And that's also vivid language. That is radical discipleship language. That is language that is ready to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, come what may. And he says, verse 11, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now somehow sounds to us in translation like Paul's not really sure if it's going to work. Somehow, like maybe this will work. Somehow I'll attain the resurrection from the dead. But the, the Greek word is better translated by any means. Paul is saying, whatever it takes, I want to know Christ. Whatever it takes, I want to share in his suffering power and his resurrection power. Paul is turning all of our worldly definitions of joy upside down. What is true joy, according to Paul? It is knowing Christ, not just in his resurrection, but in his sufferings. Joy is found in sharing the fellowship of Christ's suffering and death. For it's only then that we can fathom and know the true power of his spirit at work within us. And, and this flies in the face of everything that the world tells us. This goes against the grain of our earthly and fleshly craving for wealth, power, comfort, and control. Because it is when we lose everything for Christ's sake that we gain him in whom our true everything is found. Or as John Calvin sums it up, he says... We lose nothing when we come to Christ naked and stripped. For those things which we once wrongly imagined that we possessed, we then begin really to obtain. He therefore shows more fully, Paul shows more fully, how great are the riches of Christ because we obtain and find all things in him. So understanding Paul's sense of true joy helps us to understand why he warns us so strongly against the dangers of false joy. Why is it so perilous to put our confidence in the flesh? Well, first, because putting our confidence in the flesh gets in the way of us knowing Christ. It, it tries to fill the void in our soul with other things that numbs us with our, to our true need for him. It, it gets in the way of our relationship. Second, because putting our confidence in the flesh entices us to find our identity, our, our worth, our hope, and our joy in other places instead of in longing to gain Christ be found in him. And third, because putting our confidence in the flesh deters us, it inhibits us from sharing in Christ's sufferings and his death. Because the more we put our hope in fleshly things, the less we are going to be willing to walk the holy road of suffering that produces true joy and true godliness within our souls. So Paul speaks so strongly here against seeking confidence and joy in the flesh because he doesn't want us to settle. For anything less than Jesus. Instead, Paul urges us to be relentless in our pursuit of Christ. In fact, true joy, says Paul, requires a passionate pursuit. Pursuing the joy of Christ was the driving focus of Paul's life, as he describes in verse 12 and following. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. And that's striking because Paul says sharing in his sufferings. And Paul has had a lot of sufferings. Paul has been in the school of Christ in ways that most of us have not. And yet he says, I have not already obtained this, nor have I already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, Paul is honest here, but he's also hopeful and he's full of determination. He recognizes that he's not there yet. There's still a distance that he needs to travel to have full fellowship in Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection power. To have this perfect communion and fellowship with Christ. But he knows that this distance one day will be crossed. Why does he know this? Because 
it is Christ who has taken hold of him. Jesus has already stepped into Paul's life. Jesus is the reason why the path of Paul's life changed away from all of that. Jesus is the reason why he considered all of those things lost. Jesus had already done so much for him that he trusted that Jesus would lead him the rest of the way home. So Paul pursues him as his greatest treasure. So why is it that Paul or any of us might take hold of Christ? Well, we take hold of Christ because Christ has first taken hold of us. And Christ invites us to come ever deeper, ever closer, ever farther along as we walk in his ways and come to know his love, his life, and his purpose for us. Acknowledging that he's still a work in progress, Paul continues in verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul draws on the imagery of a runner to describe his life purpose. He forgets what is behind him. Now Paul isn't saying here that he has amnesia or that there's no value in knowing about the past. Remember, he's using a running metaphor. And, and what happens if you're trying to move forward at top speed and you're looking this way? Well, you're not going to end up where you think you're going to end up. I see this happen a lot with the children in my home, that there's a little person running full speed, and they're running this way, and they're looking this way, or this way, or this way, and that's how you end up in a different place than you expected. That's how you crash into other people or other things, and that's how you have an opportunity to fall down and get back up again. So Paul says, no, I'm not going to look back. I've already declared these things as lost for Christ. I'm going to look forward. I'm going to keep my eyes on him. And then he says, not just to keep looking ahead, but to strain toward what's ahead. That means hard work. That means exertion. That means the runner is already tired, but he's tapping into reserves. He is pressing himself to his limits because he wants to get where he is going. That means pushing yourself. That means that pursuing Jesus Christ doesn't get the leftovers of our time and energy. It gets our very best. We are to put more time, more effort, more intentionality into knowing and serving Jesus than anything else in our lives. How would we get anything else done? Because he invites us to do all things for his glory, to offer that as a gift and service for him by viewing all of life as an arena to know Christ and exalt Christ and to strain forward for the glory of Christ. So we forget what's behind, we strain toward what's ahead. Why? To win the prize of the upward call of God. We're in this race because God has already called us graciously. He beckons us to cast everything else aside to pursue the prize of knowing Christ, of being found in Christ, of sharing in the fellowship of his suffering, of his death, and of his abundant life. And that is true joy. And that kind of joy is not found anywhere else. So the pursuit of this joy commands our passionate pursuit. It is so worth it, and nothing can compare with this. So friends, in our final moments together this morning, I invite you to reflect on these questions. First, what is the Holy Spirit calling you to watch out for? What is it that you need to beware of in your life? What are the voices in your life that are enticing you to place your confidence in something that is not Christ? What flavors of Jesus plus something are you most vulnerable to? 
Second, what do you need to label rubbish? What do you need to count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ? What thing, and it might be a good thing, it might be a wonderful thing, a commendable thing, maybe something you can't imagine life without, but it's holding you back from really knowing Jesus, from really following Jesus. What do you need to let go of? Third, in, in what area of your life is Jesus inviting you to press on and to strain toward the prize of being found in him? What is that distance that you need to cross? What is the gap that needs to be filled? Where is the direction where Jesus is there and he's calling you to follow? And finally, what do you need to do in order to forget what's behind you? In order to take your eyes off of what's back there? What steps can you take? What steps do you need to take to strain toward what is ahead? Who can help you to run that way, that race well? Who can hold you accountable? Who can run with you in that pace that they're setting helps keep you on target? And as you're running that race, you help them stay on target. Friends, nothing in our lives will demand more of us than to run the race that Jesus has marked out for us. To experience the fullness of fellowship with Christ means to strip away so much of what we may hold dear. But nothing in our lives is more worthwhile than this, than knowing Christ. We can know him in the good times, yes, but it is in the times of suffering, the times when our fleshly desires are being put to death, the times when we are pushing ourselves to our very limits, straining toward the goal, when we have nothing to hold on to except Jesus, that true joy will overtake us. For when we have nothing but Christ, we possess everything, for he is the prize. So for the joy that is before us, let us Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the love that you show to us, love that you shower upon us, love that we cannot understand, we can't fathom. Lord, we can't earn it. And sometimes, Lord, we wonder, is it really true? Could you really love us? Could you really accept us? Lord, we confess that so often there are things that compete for our attention and for our allegiance. There are things in our hearts and in our lives that are blocking us from experiencing the fullness that you have for us. Lord, show us. Show us what we need to be aware of. Show us what we need to cast off and hurl into the rubbish heap. Lord, give us the strength that we do not have on our own to press on and follow you. Give us the assurance of your love. You have gotten a hold of us. You have stepped into our lives. You will give us everything that we need that we don't have on our own. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the great treasure of our souls. Let us be satisfied with nothing less and let us keep running toward that goal that we might have the joy of knowing you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit.